Hello, I'm Professor Margaret Rogers Van Koops. I like to be called Dr. Margaret. I think Professor sounds a bit auspicious. <laughs> and I certainly feel that throughout my life, um, that arriving at that, uh, being recognized, shall we say, for the body of work that I've done throughout my life was amazing in itself. Um, I'm here today to once again share with you my topic, which is to be the past is past. But in order to understand what has gone before, many of you listening were not around when I was born. So I'd like to take you back in time to how it was during the turn of the century. I know you've probably seen many movies that depict how it was, but the actual emotional mental state of how women and men were in the late 1800s through 1900s was in itself an enormous sense of society growing in a different direction. When we look back at uh, you know, any country, we see that the men were always leading the way and women were basically property that was bartered for in marriage, uh, in, uh, shall we say, slavery, whatever it was in some way, women had no say. And so when we get to the late 1800s, we start to see a body of women that are rising up, beginning to say, we have a voice and we want to be heard. And by the turn of the century, I'm sure many of you, though younger, will have heard the word suffragettes, which means women who were suffering, small women, suffragettes, French word, meaning that we are suffering um, with the male domination. Now, think about this. If you had a man walk into the room right now and say to you, you are my beautiful daughter, I love you immensely, and I have arranged for you to marry this stranger who lives in the next town, who has a, a good business, and I will give him your diary so that he can expand his business and keep you in good stead. Well, would you like it? Of course not. Modern ways are, hey, I want to be in love, I want to marry the man I care about, I'll choose that person myself, and okay, some of us may make wrong mistakes, um, but are they mistakes? Ultimately, whether we marry for better or worse, as we say in church, what we're actually doing is learning about ourselves. So let's go back again to the state of mind in the early 1900s. Anyone who was considered depressed wasn't given medications like we do today. They were put into a, some kind of mental home. They called them institutions. There they were locked away. They were often tied up, hands bound, feet bound, exposed to electrical impulses because, yes, electricity had been discovered. And still later, they were put under um, some kind of... Uh, drug of the day, and uh, lobotomies were done to their brains while they were awake. Now think about that. How horrible can it be that you can't move because the drug you've been given is rather like a snake bite, the venom of a snake paralyzes you, so you're just laying there and you know someone is going to drill a hole in your head and then they're going to poke around in your brain trying to kill off a few nerve endings in the hope that you will not be depressed anymore or that you will not be angry. And so after that is done to you, you are then taken to a room where you're tied down with belts again so you can't scratch yourself or do anything with what they've done to you, keep you sedated for a few more days, and slowly as you start to wake up, the venom's wearing off, you begin to realize you have no personality, you've lost your courage, you've lost your ability to think for yourself. You don't even know why you're in this place. And now all you know is survival mode. 
you want to escape. How horrible can that be, being locked up in a room, trying to get out, banging on the doors, trying to get someone to come and listen to you, and all they do is bang back on the door and tell you, go to sleep, be quiet. And if you keep on yelling and screaming, they'll take you once more again and once more sedate you and once more drill a hole in your brain and try and stop you from having rages. Now, if we parallel that with slavery, people being captured from their countries, forced on boats, taken to another country, they can't understand the language. Everyone's yelling and screaming at them that they have to do something and they have no idea what they're talking about and therefore they're considered imbeciles. They don't know anything. How wrong could they have been? Terribly wrong. Because everyone in their own country had their own language and knew exactly what they were saying. So if we were looking at Africa in those days where people were more nomadic, those people had their own languages and they had their own history and they understood exactly who they were and they honored their ancestors, which was no different from some Greek honoring their ancestors and the great uh, gods of the day. Everyone in some country had a knowing that there was a God figurehead, someone that we could give thanks to for our existence. And today, we have moved through many different kinds of religions that have evolved out of Catholicism. These religions, whether they're Lutheran or Protestant uh, or Baptist and so on, the list goes on has given everyone an opportunity to segregate themselves from the masses. It's given them an opportunity to think inside what their spirit self is saying to self. But of course, the old spirit laws or the old dark laws of the witchcraft and so forth are still on the books. So if you're not in a church saying hallelujah and praise the Lord in some way, whatever your religion might be, then you are outside the church. And if you should love the plants and the trees and love to be in nature, someone would say, witch, there lies a witch. And even today, when I was first born in 1942, by the time I was two years old, I could hear the voices of spirits. People who had died in bomb explosions would come to me and say, help me. And somehow there would be a great light in my room and I would shake in fear because I did not understand what was happening to me. And in that moment, those people would disappear in that light. And I thought, wow, that's magic. But at the same time, I was mortally afraid. Now, that is no different from someone being dragged from a country, put on a boat, they've never seen oceans before, and dragged across to a world where there's horses and carts that they've never seen before. Terrifying. No more terrifying or less terrifying than my seeing spirits in my room when I was a small child. So, being psychic is not always a blessing when you have no one around you to educate you. I grew up telling people what I could see and what I could hear. In those days, they said I was gifted, though no one exactly knew what gifted was because nobody could see or hear what I was doing, feeling, going through at the time. I was sensory to everyone's fear, pain, anger, and guilt because I'd experienced the dead people coming into my room from the war. And yet here were the living, walking people, day by day, walking past me, shaking in their boots with fear, fear that they would not have enough money to buy food, because you see, England had been bombed so much, Europe had been bombed so much, there wasn't much left 
and anything that was in existence was homegrown. So farmers had to be very diligent in how food was distributed. And butchers who reared the lambs and the cows also had to be disciplined. And so as a result, there was rules, rules and regulations, that everyone should have at least a mouthful of meat, a mouthful of cheese, and a mouthful of bread every day. How do you manage to understand a mouthful? Some people's mouths are bigger than others. Babies have terribly small mouths. So England came up with coupon books, and every family of four had a little coupon for meat, a little coupon for bread and so on. And when we went to the store, mother would give the book over, and the butcher, the cake maker, or whatever they were, would cut out these tiny little squares that were no bigger than a centimeter square, and put them in the tin and keep them. And then every week, a man would come and take those, and they were added up, and he would be paid for whatever he'd sold, and he would have a little profit that he could then buy his own meat and his own eggs and so on. That was called sharing in a diligent way. And I learned also to understand that someone's car stops were a joy to receive for me because I needed new clothes, because I was growing so fast. So we had church bazaars and jumble sales, and anyone who had clothes that their children had outgrown, or that the men and women had gotten bored with, or too fat for, or too thin for, they were brought to the church, and we would have what they called a jumble sale. Why? Everything was jumbled up together, and everyone would dig and delve into the piles of things, find out something that fitted them, and give a penny or two old money and walk away happy because they got something different, something new to wear, to use, whatever it might be. So I can really say of those years when I was 10 years old, I was very, very aware of how we had learned to share. But I was also very aware of the class structure the working class, the slaves on the street who slept under the bushes because they had no money. So they worked slaving away at some part-time local job for the church so they get fed. I was very aware, too, of the rich, the uh, occult, the churches, all these different things that were going on because mankind was learning to evolve away from war. Yet within our hearts was still the memory of how to fight, to survive, to exist. And that is the basic nature of any human being, animal, insect, plant. Have you ever seen a daisy pushing up through concrete? They find every little crack and somehow they manage it, don't they? That always reminds me that we as humans have just as much passion and desire as a daisy to survive. And yet we never think about it as a gift. We never think about it as a talent that is inborn within us to strive, to evolve, to become a better race, the human race. I've also walked the pathway of interacting with aliens. Now, back in those days, a 10-year-old child could not talk about aliens. So anyone that came to my room at night or took me to a spaceship, I couldn't talk about. In fact, when I tried to tell my mother, she just told me I had a vivid imagination. But years later, when I was an adult and talked to her about it, she had to admit that she too had seen aliens in her room. So from that I did use that we, generations after generations of history, have all been watched and observed by aliens for memories long forgotten that they know. They know how we've evolved, and their job is to make sure we keep evolving. 
And of course, as we've evolved, we've begun to realize that we can do much more than we ever dreamed. Let's go back in time and imagine, for example, that you're Marconi. And you just have this absolute idea in your mind that somehow you should be able to speak to someone and the vibration of your voice would resonate along a wire and appear in another place where that person could listen. If you're a young child, maybe you've gotten two cans and strung them together with a piece of rope. And your friend has gone one end and you've gone the other and you pulled it taut and you're able to hear one another talking to you. Well, that was the basis of a sound carrier. Well, we all hear sounds all the time assuming we're not deaf. But even if we are deaf, we feel the vibrations of sound. And sound is a resonation, a reverberation. We hear it in reverberation when we hear an echo. So if you go to a valley and you call your name, you'll hear your name reflected. So if I say, Margaret, 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 and you count how many times you hear your name. And when you've heard it maybe five times, you know that it's 500 feet away. Now, don't ask me how they knew that. That's what they used to tell us in school. But it was the beginning of understanding that sound has something to teach us. So let's go back again to the way we talk. Are you someone that yells and screams at everyone that you see because you're upset and miserable? If you are, have you ever thought about how your voice is hitting those people who are sitting nearby or listening nearby who have nothing to do with you, but who are affected by your voice. I was sitting in a restaurant not so long ago with my husband last year, and this woman was just laughing and joking and having fun, but her voice was so loud that my ears were tingling, and I began to get a headache because the vibration of her tones was not in harmony with my tones. So let me bring you back to you. You have a resonation. Your voice has a resonation. When you walk across the room, you swish, and you affect air, and you move vibration sounds around you that are already in the room, causing friction. Marconi began to understand that, and that drove him to try and trap it. He wanted to know how to capture the sounds in a room. And of course, he had inspiration, and inspiration comes from the spirit self, and from the spirit self, it's connected with the oneness, and the oneness, since it is all vibration, resonates with your request. In Marconi's way, he was requesting a connection with the oneness. And through his passion and desire to know more about sound, he was given information instinctively within his dreams and within his conscious thinking to put the pieces of the puzzle together. Now that's just one example. But if you stop and think back throughout history, mankind has always been thinking about the past, yet also longing to embrace the future. We all want to improve our standards of living. We all want to have happy families. We all want everything to just go so smoothly that we don't have to work hard. We can just go moseying through the day. But the truth is that if we had such an easy life, we would soon become bored. Boredom turns into mental dissatisfaction, and ultimately we end up depressed. So it doesn't matter whether you've got everything or nothing. The ultimate thing is, if you are not consciously thinking about everything you do, talking about whatever you do, sharing who you are with everyone you need to know, 
You can't have any friction in your life. You can't have any growth. So don't knock the person that's sitting in a restaurant whose voice is loud, vibrating in your ears. Instead, be thankful, as I was, and say, Aha, I realized that I'm not in attunement with this sound. And I can, like a piano, tighten my strings and connect to that person and feel them in a different way, which is what I did. And as I was attuning, I realized this woman had had a very hard life and was, in fact, excited to be with the people she was with because for the first time in her life, she was having fun. So I wasn't about to stop her having fun, was I? I was to leave. But when I did leave, I was standing outside by my car and a woman came out. And she was still laughing and joking with her friends and they got in a car and she was standing fiddling around in her purse, looking for her key. And I said to her, you had a nice time tonight, didn't you? And she looked at me and she said, yes. And I said, well, you know, there's always friendship uh, in this town because we have a small town. Would you like my card? She said, yes. I gave her my card and she became one of my students. Now, that was for a short time, but it was enough for her to understand that she could find her inner peace. And that inner peace was the inner reservation or reverberation, if you like, or whatever you want to think about her thoughts as a quietening of her worries, a sensing, a sensitivity of being still. Most people who are in some way trying to get on in their life are running a race. They feel like they're having to do everything in the moment's notice, or they have to hurry up and get it done in at least a year. They set themselves a date. Well, the bottom line is, we are not alone in this world. And if we go back to the suffragettes of so long ago, it took only one woman to announce that she felt that she should stand outside and tie herself to the rail, railings uh, in the street, when other women came along and saw what she was doing and followed her example till many were doing it. It was only when many were doing it that the men came along and thought, what are these women doing? We have to get the police and we have to arrest them and so on and so forth. But that entry of the man into the woman's world, bringing the police into the situation, it enlarged the problem so that people saw the problem, paid attention to the problem, and began to consider what could be done with the problem. So yes, we're all detectives, and we all look for solutions. But if we can't find a solution, given that we're trying to keep the old ways going, then we're forced in some way to look for a new solution and bring up a new idea, a new invention, a new perception in the way we perceive ourselves in this world. So going back to the suffragettes and all the women who began to start working in World War I, because all the men were overseas fighting and long gone for over six years, the women were able to take on the jobs that the men had been doing. Now imagine that. Up until before that war, women were considered homemakers. They could knit and sew and darn socks because socks were needed on the front lines for the men. Well, that's gone. Now they were busy in the factories, working with keeping food supplies going to the front lines, working with making their uniforms, working with uh, industry to keep the home fires burning, as it were, which is why that song arose. So women were pioneers in those days. And in the nature of pioneering, if we go back to this country and the pilgrims who arrived, it was the women who were the pioneers in finding ways and means to feed their families, support their men when they went hunting, and do what was necessary. Unfortunately, they carried disease, 
which was also bad for the natives. But that's another story and another time. But I just want you to realize by listening to these historic events that we are here to evolve. We are not here to stay stuck in a rut, doing the same thing day in, day out, until we die. So, coming back to when I was born, during that time, so many died, the world was beginning to say, I wonder if my uncle or my auntie are in the spirit world after that bomb killed them. And here was I, this little child, a medium, hearing the voices of their loved ones telling me while I'm riding on a bus, go over and tell her I'm happy and I'm fine, and my name's Mavis. I remember that one well. The woman looked very miserable and long-faced and didn't look at all approachable. But I just tapped her on her knee. I was only four years old. And I said to her, Mavis says she's all right. She looked at me. She was shocked and then bawled her eyes out. And my mother said, what did she do? Did she hurt you? And she said, no, on the contrary. And she hurriedly got off the bus. And my mother said, now don't talk to strangers. You see, that was the way. But it was such an emotional moment, it made me remember that moment. It was a private moment, a personal moment, one that was special for me, that made me realize that I was helping someone. By the time my father came back from the war, I was four and a half, uh, and became uh, his companion to go to his regimental unions for his men, I was taken along because my mother was a cripple. And as a result of that, I used to sit on men and mothers, husbands, wives, uh, uh, to, you know, be friendly and chat. And while I was doing so, I was healing their pains. I was taking away their anguish. And I was seeing their spirit guides or their loved ones. So I was giving messages a lot. And everybody loved it. And I was happy because I could do it. By the time I was seven, I was commemorated by the whole uh, Suffolk Regiment, had to stand on a day of salute everyone as they marched past. Another memory that was triggered into my emotional self as a child, that I'm here to do something. I'm here to help people. And as we move forward in my life, I watched the general public in voting, saying, you know, in order to run a country, we have to have the upper class who know everything, because the working class don't know how to run a country. And the Labour Party, as we called it in those days, arose, and the different um, uh, organizations that arose around their work to find them better conditions at work, and uh, social structures for the working class so that they could have uh, education. Because I remember that most of the children had to leave school at 12 years old in those days, whereas I was fortunate and I could stay on at least till 16 or 17 years old because I was from a better class. And so I learned that I hated class distinction. Why? Did I have to be different from them? I felt them the same. I felt their pain. I felt their anger. I felt their frustration. And it was the same in me. I felt that in me for the rules and the regulations I had to adhere to, to be an upper-class child. Where was my freedom? I was just as trapped as the working man and woman. I was limited in my friendships. I was not allowed to be wherever I wanted to be and do whatever I wanted to do. I had to perform and act in a certain way. I was jealous of the free people who could run in the park and swing and yell and shout. I wasn't allowed to. I had to whisper. And as a result, when I grew up, people used to say to me, you speak so quietly. You whisper. Why don't you speak up? And I'd say, well, I've always spoken quietly. Well, when I got into the public eye, it wasn't so easy to be quiet. They didn't have microphones in those days, so I had to learn to shout a bit. 
And it seemed to me that I was yelling my head off when I was giving a talk or a lecture, but in fact people still told me that my voice was soft and quiet and that they felt a healing from me. And as I became a public figure over the years, teaching people to understand their psychic ability and to honor and respect their inner self, the soul, the spirit of divine essence that is in all of us, people began to understand. But it wasn't till I went to India and I was up in uh, Rishikesh, a wonderful temple was there with these great wise Hindu masters. Their auras were golden. And yes, I could always see auras from when I was a child. So I was amazed to see a golden aura because most auras were yucky blues and browns and greens and uh, you know, once in a while I'd see an opalesque one, but mostly everyone was miserable and depressed, so we didn't see gorgeous auras. And here I was about 30, I think it was 77, something like that, that I was there. And so I was in my 30s, and here I am looking at these gorgeous auras, thinking, wow, these are truly spiritual entities. And we had a break. And they asked me to join them. And I've written about that in my book, My Journey into the Oneness. So I won't bore you with all the details, but I will tell you that this wise one leaned forward and he said to me, Master, who are you? I was shocked. Master? Me? No way. I'm too busy wondering what I'm going to do next and how I'm going to do it and why I should do it and when and oh, so many questions. And so I gave him the usual response I gave many people. I'm just a seeker of truth. I'm trying to find my way like everyone else. And he said again, Master, who are you? I was speechless. Then he said, let us go and join the others. So the answer was not there in me. But I thought about it a great deal. And when I got back to England, I had to give a lecture at the Mind, Body and Spirit events that we used to have back in the 70s. We were the pioneers in England of those events that now happen in America and other countries. And I had chosen to uh, speak about our spirituality. And I began with, I am a master. Immediately, everybody's hands went up and I stopped and I said, yes. And the questions came, are you master of metaphysical things? Are you master of healing? What are you? And I let them ask many questions, probably 10 or 15 people, and not one asked me the same question as to what I was master of. And finally I smiled and I said, I've come to know I am master of myself. No matter what people do to me, no matter what people say to me, no matter where I am, I have the freedom of choice to decide for myself and stand by my choice, no matter how hard that may be, to believe in what I'm doing. Everyone came to me afterwards because I followed with the talk on how to be master of yourself. And today, I still teach that from time to time. Yes, the world has changed. Yes, people look at things differently. But many people still feel they are out of control. They've lost their way. They're full of technology. They may be master of how to talk to someone over the wireless. Or they may be master of how to invent a new machine that gives impulses to heal someone. I've seen many people come through my life who have been inventors, who have new technologies, different types of hypnosis theories to place on one another. They've sold their books, they've done whatever they've done. And yet, when I talk to them, I ask them, who are you? They look at me and say, well, I teach this and I teach that and I do this and I do that. And I say, but who are you? Nobody stops to think, who are you? Well, as a young child, I did. Because having so many influences from spirit guides, 
and master teachers of the spirit world and aliens and all the many tests and things I went through. And that Indian man up in that marvelous temple asking me, who am I? I put the pieces together and I said, I am that I am. And my heart was full of joy, even now as I say it, for I understand that as Jesus wrote in his words in the way of the Jewish people of the time, he was saying the same thing, I am that I am. So what does that mean? And what does it mean for the future generations to come? I've been talking a great deal about the DNA, our ancestors, the things that people have done before we arrived. So when I talk today about suffragettes, those women, they did things that left us a message in our DNA that freedom is important. The slaves of the past, whether they were black, yellow, it doesn't matter what race they were, they too left a message in their genes that life is precious and we should appreciate life and not throw it away. When I see people on the streets today with guns killing one another, whether they be police in defense or people running from the police or war issues in other countries where people are bombing one another, I am shocked. I am appalled that we have learned nothing in over a hundred years. We still have people shouting, I'm black, I'm yellow, I'm pink, I'm purple. Why do we have to tell what color we are? Why can't we just say, I am that I am, and all that I am is all that I choose to be? Now, you could choose to be negative. You could choose to be an example to the rest of the world by carrying that gun and shooting someone and then going through the process of whatever happens thereafter that everyone will judge and condemn you. But will they remember the lesson? If they find themselves in a similar situation, will they think twice before they act because of the negative thing you did? In the same way with your families. If you are a mother who's been yelling and screaming and drinking all the time, are your children going to copy you and justify it because mother did it? Or are they going to look at you and say, this is not happening to me because I am not you. Because I came through your womb doesn't mean I have to be like you. I can find me and be me and be the me that I want to be. Fortunately, when I wrote my book, Discover Your Baby Spirit, I was full of joy to know that the new children coming in have an extra DNA strand at that time when I wrote the book. And when I finally closed it, my spirit guide said, you have an extra DNA strand. And I cried because it explained to me why I was so different from everyone else. And I was happy to know that I had a reason for why I had been a pioneer throughout my life, always looking for something better for people, always looking for some way to help the miserable, the lost. Because I'd been miserable, I'd been lost, and I wanted to help them find their feet, their footing in this world, so that they could become an example of change and growth. And in doing that, to be a model that the rest of the world could follow. Well, in my early years, I have to admit it was a struggle. Everyone I met was suffering. And every time I shared myself with them, I took on their suffering until I became a thousand million people inside me. I felt I had lost me. In that moment that I lost me, I lost life. Yes, I died.
might have a dream. <laughs> and in losing my life, I was talking to my spirit guide saying, I can't stay here. I can't do this work. It's too painful. And they said, well, you can leave if you want to. But I felt their disappointment. I felt I was letting the team down. So I said, you'll have to give me something better. And they did. They gave me India. And they gave me that wonderful man with the aura who said, Master, who are you? And to this day, I still grow and I still evolve and I still seek greater wisdom and insight in ways that I can help people today. I'm currently working with a wonderful woman named Katie Kamara and we are going to teach online. So if you're interested, write this down, www.easy easysolutions.org. It's as you write it, as you spell it. E-A-S-Y-P-E-A-S-Y-S-O-L-U-T-I-O-N-S dot org. It will be up soon. And if you listen to this and you would like to learn from us, then Katie Kamara We'll be happy to take your name and put you on the website so that we know and we can let you know when we start. In the meantime, this wonderful woman has put up for me AskDrMargaret.com. So, if you've got a question and you'd like to have an answer from me, do write there. There's a place for you to write your question and uh, I'll get back to you. Be sure to leave your email address, otherwise I can't write to you, can I? Okay, and your full name too. Now, I want you to understand that evolution comes through trials and tribulations. And as you can see by my life, it wasn't easy. And it still isn't. There's always something in the way. Right now it's the COVID-19 and I knew exactly how to stop it spreading by taking colloidal silver. But hey, I'm up against the world's doctors who think they know better, who are fiddling around trying to find something that was created over 28 years ago. That colloidal silver was known to help people who had malaria. What does it do? It kills all the bugs in your body. So, of course, once you've taken it in distilled water, you must add back your digestive system's um, enzymes and you must also put back the probiotics. Again, if you're interested in that, um, there is on Kindle my article published by John Paul Fletcher, my PR guy, who is also amazing, who has gotten all my words and works out on places like Authority, Huffington Post, Elephant, I've named just a few. Um, and so if you need help, do contact him because he's a wonderful man who really knows how to help you get out there and teach the things that you need to teach. But hey, don't be greedy. Remember, the oneness works with those who are ready to teach. They bring to you the students who want to learn. And as you know, there is a saying, when the teacher is ready to teach, the student appears, and when the student is ready to learn, the teacher appears. That's my own wording on it. But always, we are never alone. And it's very important that you understand that. Even if you're with someone that you hate and you argue with morning, noon, and night, you're not alone. And hey, by interacting this way, you are learning the hard way what anxiety, depression, miserableness is like. But we've come a long way from those days of having lobotomy, of being locked down in some isolated uh, 
you know, I don't even want to say the words that we used to use because they're so awful. You know, um, I can't, in fact, I can't even think of one right now because that's how much I don't want to go back to those days and remember what I saw there. People were like zombies. It was horrible. And even though I was assisting and counseling, I could also see that many of those zombies were possessed, as it were, by earthbound spirits, something that people don't think about. But today we've come a long way from that. We now know that our spirits can share with another spirit, that we can, if we want to, be possessed by another spirit and be cured by simply praying and blessing and talking and helping a person change their vibration by understanding they can be positive. And as soon as that person realizes there is an alternative way to think, the earthbound spirit is released and taken to heaven. Yes, I've done a lot of rescue work throughout my life and will continue to do that probably until the day I die. The beauty of being a medium is that when I give a talk in a large room with, say, 200 people, usually there are 200 earthbound people there as well because everyone has someone on the dark side surrounding them as much as there are many on the light side. And depending on your nature and the way you perceive yourself in this world, you may give voice to the dark side and speak the words of the lost spirit that's around you without even knowing it. Or on the positive side, come out with some words of wisdom that you give to somebody who's seeking some insights and then later wonder, where did I get all that knowledge from? We are all mediums. We are all connected to one another. No one is separate. Even the darkest soul, lost in the darkest realms of the first plane of evolution, is not alone. If you think about an amoeba, it separates itself into two and continues to do that. It's a habit. It only knows separation. Well, the oneness is like that too. We are fragments of unity, all separated from the original core that is the I am, the one. And we also desire to return to be a part of the one. And so we are constantly in ascension and dissension. I'm happy to say that Katie Kumara has gotten my last book up recently called The Light Side of the Oneness. You might like to read that book and understand just how the oneness functions in the light and the dark. And I also have a book called The Dark Side that was written just before that one. And they go together, they're twins. So if you're interested in evolving, in learning more about the encoded parts of your being that are dark and light, and seeing how you can use both to understand this world and to live in it in a state of awareness, not to be neutral, but to be a part of it, so that you can do something in a very practical way to help your family, your friends, your neighbors, and yes, strangers. If you remember the story of how everyone in the Bible, in some way, when I say the story, I mean any story, where the Bible has shown in the Old Testament how someone has suffered, and yet the light of God in the form of angels or some unknown person has turned up to help them on their way. It's no different today. Maybe the angel who comes to your door is someone bringing you some free food because you haven't eaten in three days. Maybe your house has been washed away by the rain and someone came in a boat to save you from drowning. Or maybe you found yourself on a high hill overlooking so much destruction that you sit and pray for them all, knowing that in some way your prayer has been heard and someone somewhere else 
is responding to your prayer and is right now, in this very moment, helping someone because you asked them to. You see, we're all connected. We may not always know why or how. We just have this inspiration, this little voice in our being that says, offer some help in some way. If you are in the negative mode, all you have to do is ask for help. But you must be aware that your negativity has held you down. So be ready to let it go, so that you can receive someone with a more positive insight who can help you to overcome emotional suppressions and depressions that you've held on to. Ancestors have left us a great deal of sorrow and sadness in our DNA. If you've chosen to tap into that, then you will, may well, shall we say, feel miserable daily. So meditate on your ancestors and thank them for teaching you this lesson. And then allow yourself to let go of their history. You don't need to relive their life in your life. All you need to understand is that they paved the way for you to arrive here and live this life. Now, ask yourself, what can you give to the world? However humble, however small, could be an act of just hugging someone today. It's important to know that when we said pay it forward, it meant do something. However small, a little something is so much better than nothing at all. If you have a book and you've read it, give it to someone else to read it. If you have an old dress that you no longer want, give it to someone else to wear. Whatever you have that you don't need, give it away. Because when you give it away, you leave a space for you to receive something new. Whatever comes to you that is new may seem stressful at first because it means change. But change gives you a golden opportunity to grow spiritually, to grow mentally, physically and emotionally into a new direction of awareness. Here's an example. I had a student who was very fed up with being an office worker. She asked me what she could do, and I suggested that she go to the university and study the arts. As a result of that, she did that, and became employed on very famous shows on television. And as a result of that, met her husband, and as a result of that, together, they are still happy with wonderful children and a good life. You see, we follow a chain, a pathway. If you don't move on, you won't meet the next person you're supposed to meet. If you don't move on from where you're fixed by your mind that's fixed, then you can't move on bodily because your body is tired, exhausted, worn out, fighting to stay with your memories of sadness and sorrow, rubbing your nose and face in what was, justifying why you should be angry, lonely, and miserable. Do you want to put yourself in your own physical, mental asylum? Now I have the word, asylum, okay? It comes when the oneness works with me, when I need to use it to bring the point home. Glad you're not having a lobotomy, I'm sure, in a mental asylum back in the turn of the century and up to the 50s. I'm sure you're glad you weren't given the venom of a snake but are you taking those horrible depression medications that leave you tired and exhausted and you can't be bothered to do anything else? Hey, don't repeat patterns from the past. Toss them away. Get the herbal remedies, the things that are natural to your body. Build up your digestive system. Give yourself the right minerals. Give yourself the right foods. If food's difficult to find, then go back to the core, like man did long ago, 
eat the grains because they have all the protein and all the vitamins and all the minerals you need. The earth provides you with what you need, natural foods. Yes, we're hunters. Yes, we're meat eaters, fish eaters, crab eaters, insects eaters. We eat anything that gives us protein because we do not manufacture protein like some animals do. As part of our makeup, as part of the way we were made to exist. So don't feel you have to be a vegetarian and deny yourself all the right protein. You could eat beans forever and ever and still not get enough. I'm not advocating that you eat, become a meat eater. My own sister is a vegetarian. But what you have to realize is, if your body is weak, you're missing some parts that are important. So be sure you get the right foods for your body. A while back there were people selling certain diets and things and what kind of person you are and what kind of diet you should be on. Well, that's been and gone, hasn't it? Now everybody's uh, worried they're not going to get any food and they're cramming their fridges with all sorts of food that normally might not buy. What are you eating from other countries that doesn't affect you or does affect you in the wrong way? People are not used to having food from another country when you were a baby, you weren't given those foods. You didn't even know they existed. And you wonder why your alimentary tract is sick. Eat your homeland foods. They're the things you grew up on. Those are the things that will heal you. And now let us be aware that we are all human beings. No matter our color of skin or religion or philosophy, we are humans. And as humans, we have emotions. And those emotions are stimulated by our spirit that lives in our body. It's your spirit that will leave when you die. And it is your spirit that will return to your collective soul group as energy. Think on this. You have been alive on this planet in what we call our past. You have also been alive in what we call our future to come. For you see, in the oneness there is no time. You can incarnate in any period, in any place, in any form, in any solar system that you don't know about right now. So when you think about we should travel to Mars. You're thinking about this solar system. Hey, it's just one spot in a vast cosmos. So stop thinking about your spiritual involvement and instead think about how you can be most spiritual in your body on this planet by doing whatever you can do to help yourself, your children, your family, your neighbors, and people across the world to live a happier life. Put down your judgment, for it does no good to you or anyone else. Awaken to the peace in your heart of knowing instinctively what is the right thing to do. Everyone has a place in our society. Everyone has a chore to do. And everyone will do it, even if they don't know they're doing it. Because yes, often our spirit is silent while we're in the body. But instinctively, without knowing why, we respond to stimuli, we do whatever we want to do, we rationalize it afterwards, but ultimately we've left ourselves and the world a message. We can't all be great sages of our time, but we can be honest neighbors, loving friends, and wise counselors. So on this note, I thank you for listening to me and recognize now that our children in the future are different. They have not just one DNA strand activated that's extra, but three or four now. They're coming in 
with wisdom, they will change this world in ways that no one living right now can understand. They will understand sound, the vibration of energy, and they will recreate a world that is beyond our understanding now. Give them the opportunity to prepare for that. Teach them about the value of resonation, reverberation, sonic, subsonic, and supersonic sound. That is the key to the oneness and to our existence. Bless you and thank you for listening. Be well and do follow me on all my other shows, even my half-hour shows that are on iTunes and are likely to be in other places eventually. Learn from me because that's what I do, teach. Goodbye. Stay well.